Hi, hi, hello, guys. I am one of Santa's elves, and this is the Elves Ramblings. <laughs> Kidding. I'm not one of the elves. I am Louis. <laughs> this is Macabre Ramblings. And so, this is the, as I have said, this is the last episode for 2021. Oh my god. So this means that I'm going to meet you guys next year, basically. Possibly somewhere along the first week of January, not, but just not January 1. <laughs> Wait, let me just check. So January, it's... Yeah, so maybe January 2 or just around that first week of January. I don't know when I will drop the next episode, but after this one, Christmas break is here for this podcast. But before the break, of course, we're going to tackle the rest of the case that I have talked about in the part one. And this part two will probably be a lot longer than part one because I have gotten more information as i researched and yeah so just a quick recap on where we were before the part one has ended we are talking about the information that i got in the coroner's inquest and i am currently listing down the different uh, information that they got in relation to the possibility of a third-party involvement in Phoebe Hansjuk's death. And there's quite a few bullet points that I was talking about and I stopped in the middle of it after talking about the fingerprints or the lack thereof of valuable or uh, good fingerprints in the evidence. And now, before we continue with the rest of the bullet points in the third-party involvement one, I'm going to talk about the CCTV footage first because I found this interesting and personally, I don't know where to insert it. And so I'm just going to say it now. So you'd think that the police would go and obtain the CCTV footage inside the apartment because they have CCTV. And even if there is no CCTV cameras in the 12th floor, there is a CCTV camera in the lobby and in different parts of the uh, apartment. But they did not obtain the full CCTV footage from the apartment complex at the date of the incident. The manager actually gave evidence that there is the CCTV cameras around. He told the police about the location of these CCTV cameras. And he told these to the police because he knows that they were having problems with the CCTV cameras at that time because the looping of the footage was too short. So after only around two to three days, the uh, recordings is going to be taped over. They don't 
I don't know what happened, but I guess they were having problems with the data. And so he was scared that people, the police, would uh, obtain or get the CCTV footage after two to three days. And so all of the evidence and information is gone by then. So he actually told the police about this. And he even suggested that the police should go and start downloading the information in the CCTV cameras as fast as possible. But the police on the night of the incident didn't really respond to him suggesting it. He actually managed to mention this, the manager, to two or three police officers on the night of December 2, so on the night of the incident. And he actually thought that because the accident was weird, it was unusual, he was kind of like expecting that the police would go and seal his office and say like nobody touch anything, nobody touch any equipment, and that they're going to grab it for evidence. He actually uh, expected that, but it didn't happen. Nobody confiscated his things, nobody sealed off his uh, office because his office has a lot of like keys and all of that stuff. Nobody sealed it, and nobody even told him to stop the CCTV system. Nobody told him to shut it down or that unplug the DVR because apparently uh, to stop the system from looping over the information that is currently saved, they could just unplug the DVR and then they could take it away so they could process what is inside the hard drives. But they didn't even do that as well. So actually the manager, because he knows you, you know, he has this instinct that the CCTV cameras might, might prove or give something important, but he does not know how to retrieve the data himself. He has no technical knowledge about how to grab all of that details. He just knows that there is a problem with the looping, but he doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know how to download the data himself. So he contacted an independent company. Cielox. It's S-I-E-L-O-X. Cielox? Shellox? However you can say that. But he contacted this company to help him download the footage. So in the course of giving some evidence, because the manager managed to give evidence, but not all of them. Not all of the tapes, I mean, from the CCTV. But in the course of giving evidence... There was a little bit of a problem with the validity of the evidence, I suppose, because he, the manager, contacted another company and the company was the one to download the footage, not the police. So there happened to be quite, I don't know, a problem with that about the validity because the police weren't the ones to get the data. So, you know, some kind of like technical stuff between that. But actually, the manager assumed that the police were working in conjunction with the company, Cialox, because, I don't know, he thought that maybe they are working in conjunction with this company because there is a case going on. So he didn't think that him contacting an independent company would have any problems, but it kind of did. The evidence revealed that the police had no communication with Cialox, in relation to downloading the data from the CCTV camera system. So the, the manager contacted Cialox, but apparently they could only download one camera at a time. Uh, they were having trouble doing it, and it was, ac it 
was taking a long, long time. And because the manager had no technical expertise, he was unable to explain why the company could not perform the task better or faster. He is also unsure whether the cameras could have been downloaded like at the same time concurrently instead of one by one. And as I read the inquest, the coroner's inquest, I didn't write it down in my notes, but apparently there's one employee from the company, Cialox, who came and started downloading one camera at a time, as I've said. So he actually did not stay in the apartment, so he just leaves the equipment while it, it is downloading. And apparently one camera is around, it downloads around four hours, but this employee leaves the equipment, so the cam- uh, so the equipment just downloads the information from the camera, but this employee does not come back after four hours. He he they came back at around eight hours so there was time lost there that could have been productive and then when he connected the equipment to another camera he didn't come after i don't know it it just wasn't done in an urgent fashion is what i'm trying to say and by the time that uh they got to some certain cameras it the cameras unfortunately the data in them had already looped so they had lost quite a number of cameras so whatever was recovered was able to be recovered but the others it's just lost so when the manager provided the disks of data to the police uh he told them that the footage was incomplete and that providing them the rest would have been not possible and he is only providing what was recoverable so Detective Justin O'Brien, who was one of the first police members on site of the ac- in the accident, said that he actually did not discuss update obtaining the CCTV footage from the manager. So I assume he knows that there is a CCTV camera or a CCTV system around the apartment, but he did not say anything about retrieving any data to the manager. But while in the, in- uh, in the interview for the inquest, he did agree that obtaining the CCTV footage would have been crucial. He just did not think of that at the time of the incident, I suppose. Another detective named Angela Sorrell said that she did recall looking at some CCTV footage that evening, but no one instructed her to get any footage or the hard drive. She was only a junior and she just follows whatever detec- Detective Butterworth his name, Detective Butterworth. Anyway, she was a junior and she just follows whatever Detective Butterworth says. And she acted under his direction and Detective Butterworth did not ask her to do anything about the CCTV footage. So in his oral evidence, Detective Butterworth did agree that the CCTV footage was vital evidence. <laughs> and he also agreed that there was no attempt by the police to, to seize the DVR. And there were no inquiries made by police as to whether it was possible to just get the DVR system. He also confirmed that Victoria Police has this audio-video unit in the Forensic Science Department. They had personnel there with expertise in retrieving data from DVR systems, but no arrangements were made to get some help from this unit in the Victoria Police. Detective Butterworth also said that he did not consider calling relevant experts from Victoria Police because apparently he remembered that he asked someone to organize the copying 
of the CCTV footage. The problem here is, he does not remember who he had asked, and it was not recorded in his notes. So what the actual heck is this? It's, it's, oh, it's kind of sloppy, I'm going to be <laughs> honest about that. And then, that's about it with the CCTV cameras. And now we go to the apartment, the trash bins inside the apartment. And as you remember that, there were shards of glass, broken glass on the floor. And they don't know if this is a uh, drinking glass. They assume it's a drinking glass, but they do not know for sure if it's a drinking glass. And apparently, they could not find any other pieces of the glass, you know, there could have been like a broken glass and the, you know when you drop a glass and it's broken there's one piece of it that's big you know it's not going to shatter in equal sizes so there's just one big chunk of it that you could pick up and throw in the trash so they were trying to find if there's kind of something like that that would indicate that yeah these glasses on the floor they're drinking glasses so that they did say that they weren't able to find any of these but apparently, Miss Shelley Tonkin, and this is uh, the housekeeper in the in the apartment, informed police that there was a bin in the kitchen, a bin in it in each of the bathrooms, and a bin in the study. The only bin that was searched by the police is the one in the kitchen. So they don't know if the contents of the other bins. <laughs> they do not know that. So now let's go back to the third party involvement and this is the bullet point for the blood on the door of the 12th floor garbage room so this floor this floor this blood in the 12th floor garbage room it was not tested and apparently it's even muckier than that because the notes of detective sorrel and detective butterworth referred that there exists a small drop of blood on the door Leading to the 12th floor garbage room, Detective Healy, who appeared to have been the one to tell this information to them, said it was possible that there was blood on the door, but that he had no recollection of it. What? And he did not know where on the door it was located or at what height it was located. So, you see what I say? It's muckier because it's mucky because what is this? <laughs> what is this even? So, because, uh, I, got, I guess it was not, so this blood was happening. This blood was not photographed, it was not tested, and neither Detective Sorrel and Detective Butterworth saw the blood on the door. Detective Healy is just the one who told them about this, so he, they both wrote it down in their notes. So, it became mucky in a way that, is there even blood in there, or is there not? Because there's only just one person and this person that even said that there's blood there don't even remember where it was on the, f on the door. So leading senior constable Bernard Carrick, it is from Victoria Police Forensic Services, did not recall that he was told about any blood on the door and said that if someone did tell him about the blood on the door, he would have made a note of it. But he does not recall anybody telling him about that and so he did not take note of it. So, in the ground floor garbage room, we go there, go back down after going to the 12th floor. They found a mixture of DNA there. And this mixture of DNA is from at least two people. And this came from blood stains on the inside of the door of the garbage room. So, 
In an in her oral evidence, Miss Brown, a biologist, forensic biologist, if I remember correctly, explained that the majority of the DNA on the inside of the door was from Phoebe herself. But there's another DNA mixed around with it. So the balance of the DNA material could have come from another one's blood, another person's blood, hair or sweat making contact with the door. She could not determine the age or source from the other person's DNA. And that is weird because there's a lot of possibilities why the DNA was there. Was it just there and it just, you know, when Phoebe touched the door, it just mixed around with her blood? Did someone contaminate it accidentally? Is somebody there at the garbage room while Phoebe was crawling around? Nobody knows. But there is another DNA found in the garbage room. And now going back back up to the apartment in the 12th floor, uh, the apartment door there had to be manually locked. So it's not automatically locking when you close the door. And on December 2, the day of the incident, police did not ask whether Mr. Hample, Phoebe's boyfriend, the police did not ask him if the front door of the apartment was locked. So the boyfriend himself does not know whether the door was locked or unlocked. Now, looking at the machine, the compactor, Mr. Neil Bone, the managing director of Wastec, gave evidence about how the garbage compactor was working. So he provided significant cooperation because he was interested in the case. He helped a lot. He, he, if you remember, he made a replica of the garbage chute in his workshop and made a test just to see what could have happened. You know, he was this into the case. So he provided significant cooperation and assistance. He, uh, as I have said, he made a replica of the entry hatch for use in Mr. Campbell's experiments. He provided photographs, videos, diagrams, and a sample, even a sample of the steel that the garbage chute was made from. He had even cut the steel to 530 millimeters, and this is the same diameter as the chute in the Balencia apartment complex where the accident had happened. So in his witness statements, Mr. Bone said that if the garbage compactor was set on auto, auto is its normal operational setting, Phoebe's injuries when she got out of the chute, it would have been more extensive. It would have been bloodier. It would have been worse. However, if the machine was set on manual, she would have passed through the machine uninjured because the blades could stop if someone is manually setting it to go and stop. She would have been injured in a way that maybe her ankle gets broken. She would have had bruises when she hits the garbage bins but not injured by the blades of the compactor itself. So this is weird. So Mr. Bowen speculated that Phoebe's injuries might have been consistent with someone changing the setting from auto to manual while she was passing through the machine. And this suggests that another person might have been involved in her death. So after providing his witness statements, Mr. Bone undertook even more various experiments using the replica of the machine, and he videotaped them and or photographed them. So these experiments included 
a person moving from a standing to kneeling position on the ejection door, a person kneeling on the ejection door inside the machine. There's different sized pieces of wood placed in the compactor to observe how it looks like when it gets hit by the blade. You know, any just a couple of experiments just to see what happens when this is when this is the situation and all of that. So after all of these tests, Mr. Boot ended up stating that while he could not be certain, he still could not be certain as to what setting the machine was, it was possible that the machine was set on auto. So I guess he found a few like, it could be possible, but it could also be not and it could be possible, but it does not mean that that is the situation when the accident had happened. So the police actually ended up uh, releasing information concerning a man in a media release. So Miss Fotheringham, Fotheringham, that's such an interesting name. So Miss Fotheringham, which is a resident in the apartment complex, she made a statement to the police. She said that, at approximately 4 p.m. on a day in December, so not specific on what day, she just said that she saw a man enter the lift at basement level 1. She uh, remembers this man because he was carrying an item that she thought of was weird. She said that the item was around 20 centimeters long by 8 to 10 centimeters wide. And uh, when she looked at the button, in the elevator, she found that the 12th floor was illuminated and on that basis, she believed that this someone who was carrying this weird object is going to go up to the 12th floor which the incident had happened. So, in cross-examination, Miss Fotheringham said that the date in which she saw the man was December 2, so she was suddenly saying a specific date. And she said that it looked like he was carrying a suction bottle. She eventually conceded that she did not have a clear picture in her mind of the man. And that she could have been mistaken when she said that she saw the button for the 12th floor. Because, you know, witnesses could be helpful, but witnesses could also be a red herring. Because our brain does weird stuff. And sometimes, or often, oftentimes, we just recall stuff in a weird order. Or we recall stuff, but we don't recall it as accurately as we want to. And so witness statements could make stuff mucky. <laughs> so she did say that she was uncertain as to whether the man she saw in the lift was the same man who was pictured in the police media release. Because the police media released some, uh, as I've said, information about a man at April 15, 2013. And the police identified him as a tradesman and his presence in the building was eventually investigated but he was found not to be suspicious. And now we go to another part of this case that makes me incredibly frustrated and this is the preservation of evidence from the computer and the gadgets inside the apartment. So in an interview with the police on November 2, 2011, uh, the boyfriend, Mr. Hample, said that when he returned home, the computer was on. It was on the Gmail homepage and he had the impression that Phoebe was the one to access this Gmail homepage. And this is when he also found the blood on the mouse in the computer. 
So at the time of her death, it was unknown whether there were any letters or emails on the computer. And when Detective Butterworth investigated in the apartment, he saw the laptop on the table and the iMac on the study. At some stage that evening, he eventually saw the blood on the mouse of the iMac. So Mr. Hample said that when he arrived home, there were two glasses on the bench which had not been there that morning. That morning? That morning? So that's why he said that he could not exclude the possibility that Phoebe had had a drink with someone. Oh, why is that there? <laughs> that's a weird information that just got squeezed there. But anyway, that's that's just bonus fact, I suppose. So, uh, so Detective Butterworth found the uh, iMac computer, and when asked, there's another detective named. I know there's a, a lot of names here, but. I'm trying my best. <laughs> so Detective Wallace, another detective, said that yeah, it, it was a good reason to just take the computer at the time. But guess what? They did not take the computer immediately. Ugh. But they did seize the computer. But it was three months after on March 10, 2011. And it was seized that day, but... The iMac was not analyzed in any detail until September 4, 2013. <sighs> yeah, it was two years after. It was two years after, and so, you know, the computer was taken three months after the incident, and so it was used. It was used, and possibility that some relevant data has been written over is possible. <sighs> So this could be a problem. And looking at Phoebe, she actually had two mobile phones, an iPhone 3 and a Nokia phone. The police did not seize both of these phones on the night of the incident. This is despite the fact that Dr. Hansjok, Phoebe's father, informed the police in his statement on December 2 that the boyfriend, Phoebe's boyfriend, had told him that Phoebe's mobile phone mobile phone was in the apartment when he arrived home. So the father did say to the police that, you know, her mobile phone is in the apartment. Maybe you know you could look at it. And even Detective Healy gave evidence that Phoebe's boyfriend showed him Phoebe's mobile phone, but they did not seize the mobile phone. So on December 7, 2010, police eventually collected Phoebe's iPhone from Mr. Hample, and this was placed in a lockable drawer. At the time the iPhone was analyzed on December 9, 2010, some of the text messages that had been sent to Phoebe on December 2 had been read. So they asked the boyfriend if he had any recollection of somebody reading the text messages after the incident and he said that he does not recall this and so looking at the what ifs of this uh gadget seizing thing that the police had been doing if the police had taken his mobile phones that evening it would have preserved the integrity of the evidence and might have assisted in determining which messages had been read by phoebe or not and this could have you know assisted narrowing down her time of death but that's not all of it that is surrounding the phones of pb because on december 1 pb's boyfriend 
actually said that he had taken Phoebe's mobile phone to work with him on Wednesday, December 1, to have it repaired. On November 2, 2011, when the detectives were asking Phoebe's boyfriend about this, he said that he took the phone to be report to be to be repaired definitely the Tuesday or the Wednesday, so suddenly his recollection isn't good. And after a few more uh, uh, investigation or interviews, he said that he is starting to lean towards it being Thursday rather than Wednesday. So looking at it like this, if December 1 was Wednesday, then Thursday would be December 2. And December 2 is Phoebe's accident. And so that would be kind of like an interesting thing because he has Phoebe's phone. And you'll see why that's interesting because, uh, yeah. So in Mr. Hample's counsel, so maybe his lawyers, they said that in the course of the inquest, the iPhone was taken. They said that they said through the course of the inquest that the iPhone was taken to be repaired on the Thursday. So suddenly it's being repaired on December 2, 2010. And in the cross-examination, the boyfriend said that it was possible that he may have told Phoebe's father that her mobile phone was at the apartment because, you know, Phoebe's father told the police that Phoebe's phone is in the apartment because Hample, Phoebe's boyfriend, had told him that Phoebe's phone <laughs> is in the apartment. And when asked, he said that it may have been possible that, yeah, I might have told him that the phone was at the, apart was at the apartment and it is possible that he may uh, that he may have even showed this to, to Detective Healy. So talking about uh, phones, you'd think that some, you know, towers, signal towers, telephone towers could help with pinpointing the location. But unfortunately, it does not help in looking at whatever Phoebe's boyfriend was doing that day. Because of course, you look at the boyfriend's movements. The cell phone towers could not help because... Mr. David Finlay from Optus gave evidence that, that the towers recorded on the Optus phone records were those that received the strongest signal. So this means that the tower was not necessarily the one in closest proximity because if you know if there's like a closer tower to you, but there is buildings or something that would block the signal from that tower, and the tower from farther away gives you better signal, you're phone records would be recorded on the one that is farther away so it could not help that much in terms of pinpointing where the boyfriend was specifically at the day of the incident and there's another weird thing about phoebe's sim card because when they got the phone and i'm saying the phone because one of the mobile phones weren't seized it's actually missing so just the iphone was taken because the boyfriend has it. He got it repaired, I suppose. It's so weird, right? I'm also confused about this cell phone thingy. Anyway, when looking at the f cell phone, the software that leading senior constable Daly said that the software that was used during the analysis of the SIM card, it could not read Phoebe's SIM card. Today, he said that it was possible that other sections within Victoria Police could have better machines. And they may have been able to read the SIM card at the time of the analysis, but he did not, he did not make any increase at e-crime at the time. And there is no evidence that anyone else asked the e-crime to help them. 
He just informed Detective Wallace that, hey, the SIM card that you want me to analyze, it could not be read. So rather than making any inquiries to determine if the SIM card could be read by e-crime or arranging to hold like somebody else to help with the investigation or even just holding the SIM card in evidence, Phoebe's iPhone and the SIM card, they were just returned to Phoebe's boyfriend on December 10, 2010. What? <laughs> My reactions to all of these information is me just, what? Are you serious? So at the inquest, Mr. Hampel, the boyfriend, gave evidence that the iPhone and the SIM card had been returned to him, but he did not know the whereabouts of Phoebe's SIM card at the time of the inquest. Fishy. Fishy, fishy, fishy. Because... I, know, I don't know if you're picking it up, but I'm not talking about the boyfriend because he is not fishy and suspicious at all. I'm talking about the boyfriend because we're going to have a lengthy discussion about him after all of these. Yep, the reason why this episode is going to be long is because of Anthony Hampel, the boyfriend. Anyway, continuing on. The manager gave evidence that the swipe cards, looking at the swipe cards now, and car park remote controls that were allocated to... Mr. Hample's apartment at the time, the evidence that he gave suggested that uh, the boyfriend generally used swipe card 533 and car park remote 1142, and Phoebe used the swipe card 664. So on December 2, only the swipe card 533 was used to go at the, at the elevator in the apartment complex at 9.01 a.m. The next use of this swipe card was at 6.09 p.m. that evening. So the only time the car park remote 1142 was recorded is at 6.06pm and there was no other recorded usage of Swipecard 533 or car park remote 11.42 that day. So looking at the, rec the records, it's it looks kind of clean for Hample at this time. And in the period 11.54am to 7.15pm, there was no one who was buzzed up to the 12th floor in the swipe log. So you know how I talked about the paramedics and said that kind of like had this weird like disbelief disbelief moment where why in the world did they not check if Phoebe was alive or dead inside that garbage chute? Remember that? I'm kind of retracting a few things from that. Uh, mostly my rage at the paramedics because apparently the paramedics they they were they were there. They they got there at the scene after the police so the police were there first and when they got there they were stopped at the corridor by the police and the, the policeman said words kind of like hey this is this is a crime scene you're not allowed to go past here so he stopped the paramedics and so the paramedics could not do anything miss cook one of the paramedics said that they did offer to put the monitor on phoebe you know, we're not going to touch anything else. We're just going to put this monitor on her. And the policeman, the older policeman said, nah, no, you can't. So the paramedics said that they were not allowed into the garbage room. And although she could have reached across and touched Phoebe, she was also not allowed to do that. So my rage to the paramedics, it's not there <laughs> anymore. It's just frustration because... They were there, and the older policeman is just like, no, this is a crime scene. Like, they were just stopped, and so no examinations were made because of this. And it is frustrating. 
And that is why the paramedics gave evidence that while they were there getting stopped at the corridor, uh, she, Miss Cook, did look in the doorway of the garbage room to observe Phoebe. And that's why she said that Phoebe showed no spontaneous respirations and appeared deceased because she could not touch her. She could not check if she is alive, so she could just stare. And that's why she said that she appeared deceased. So in his statement, oh my god, this is why I'm so frustrated. I'm just laughing through my frustration at this point. Because in his statement dated August 20, 2013, Sergeant Forster, one of the police at the scene, stated that Phoebe looked deceased and that his observations were based on his 38 years experience as a police officer. He said, quote, Without the need to enter the room or touch the body, I had no reservations that the female was deceased. End quote. And to that, I say, you're not a paramedic. You're not somebody who is licensed to do that. They have their job there and you have your job there. You can just go like, hey, I'm a police for 38 years. I know how the dead body looks like. And <laughs> Anyway, I don't know what I'm saying right now. I'm just frustrated because that is not his job. <laughs> it's the paramedic's job. And yeah, I'm just going to move on because I'm just going to end up rambling and possibly go on a ranting spree. And that's not going to be good for the length of this podcast. Probably editing, editing me would just cut it, you know. So there was no evidence that the police asked any staff at the apartment complex to turn off the garbage compacting machine before Detective Butterworth had arranged to do so at 9.22pm. And by not turning off the compacting machine, this means that some residents were there, not the apartment. And uh, if you think about it, at the time that Phoebe was found, it was around 7pm, so that's maybe the time where the ones who are at work had come home to eat dinner and so the garbage chute would have been used even more because that's just the time where people are moving a lot throwing some stuff like you're cutting vegetables you're throwing your garbage you're cleaning your house i suppose so there are people inside this apartment at that time and because they did not turn off the compacting machine the garbage just rotated like it's their normal operation their normal routine and so it would have been it would have contaminated the evidence because there's a part of Phoebe's body that made contact with the frame of the machine. And now there's more stuff running through it and it's contaminating the evidence that they could have gotten from the machine. And looking at the sloppy work, the police, once again, they did not secure the entries and the exits of the apartment promptly. And, uh... They did not, uh, what do you call this, evacuate the people inside the apartment, inside Phoebe's apartment. Uh, so Detective Butterworth acknowledged, after all of this has already happened, he acknowledged that yeah, once they knew that Phoebe was the girl at the garbage room, it would have been, you know, good that it would have been prudent to remove all people in the apartment so they could investigate the apartment without contaminating anything inside it further. However, instead of that, the boyfriend was just allowed to enter the apartment alone. He's just allowed 
to return to his apartment. So things are going to get pretty much moved around inside the apartment. And because an accident has happened, the boyfriend had talked to his relatives and Phoebe's relatives. And so people had arrived at the apartment and they also entered the apartment. And the apartment was vacated, but it was not vacated until at appro until approximately 8.46 p.m. So at that time, at that time, people had already went in and out of that apartment after the incident. And so things have gotten moved around. Other DNA of other people had been placed in, their, in that apartment. And so the scene is contaminated now. Everything is just mucky. Everything just got contaminated and it is frustrating <laughs> and now and now at last oh my gosh <laughs> the boyfriend and now we go to the boyfriend and before we delve into his uh experience that he said happened to him at the day of the incident let's talk about who he is like quickly like speedily just talk about who he is so hample Anthony Hampel is Phoebe's boyfriend. He is a public relations executive and he is from one of Victoria's most well-known legal families. He is the son of former Supreme Court of Victoria Judge George Hampel and the stepson of Country Court Judge Felicity Hampel. So, power. There's power there, especially in law because they were court judges and one of the father is a supreme court judge so actually hampel was born on august 1 1967 and he was 43 years old so there's definitely an age gap there between him and phoebe so he met phoebe in 2009 through an acquaintance and phoebe at that time was 23 years old so they began a friendship at first, and then they started seeing each other. So at approximately only six months, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's fast, or am I just slow? But you know, dating, I think it's fast to just, I don't know, is it just me or it's fast? Because in my eyes, this is like fast development, because in just six months, PB had moved in with him. And in the incident, they were together for around 20 months. So around almost two years. So this apartment was owned by Anthony. But Phoebe financially contributed to some expenses. There was no formal rental agreement at all. So just she was there. He owns it. But she helps with some expenses. And he did say that he knows that Phoebe was suffering from depression. And he also knows that she was seeing a therapist for this. But because of her depression and her mental health, they inevitably got into problems because of it. She sometimes gets really emotional and there are times when she just disappears for hours or she even disappears for a night without him knowing where she is. He also said that she keeps a diary full of negative thoughts. And this is me writing down in my notes say, in a bullet that is definitely pushing in the fact that her mental health isn't good. I mean, everybody knows, not everybody, but 
It's not a secret that her mental health is bad, but in the course of my research, you could I could see that the boyfriend is definitely emphasizing her bad mental health all throughout. And yeah, so Mr. Hample is in his job. Phoebe was frequently required to attend some social functions, and she finds these difficult at times because in these social functions, there is alcohol, and she is having problems with alcoholism, so it's triggering for her to be around alcohol if she is trying to not abuse the intake of alcohol. And you know, when you have depression and you have days where it's really bad, and you're not in a good place and you go to a social function like that and i assume that if it's because of her boyfriend's social function she doesn't know a lot of people there it's going to be quite overwhelming so this is hard for her so before we dwell we dwell we dwell we delve deeper into anthony some people actually thought that phoebe this accident it was done because she has borderline personality disorder. And actually, Dr. Peter Chervin is a senior consultant psychiatrist. He treated Phoebe in 2008 to 2009. He said that her behavior in that period was consistent with the diagnosis of early stages of borderline personality disorder. But he had not seen her for approximately 12 months before she died. So he doesn't know if his uh thoughts were correct so looking at the psychiatrist that was treating phoebe in the period leading up to her death miss young she considered that phoebe had elements of borderline personality disorder but phoebe did not meet the full criteria of it and i am not a psychiatrist but i think that borderline personality disorder is pretty hard to diagnose because it's borderlines kind of like on the edge and stuff i think it's hard to diagnose that properly and even phoebe's father dr hans Juk, he is a psychiatrist with around approximately 40 years experience he confirmed that phoebe had never been diagnosed with bpi and he gave evidence that since phoebe's death he looked back at her uh, behavior and as an experienced psychiatrist he said that he did not believe that phoebe had bipolar a bipolar borderline personality disorder and he had also discussed this issue with his colleague and the colleague's name is chili <laughs> it's not that important but i found it quite cute that the colleague is chili the nickname i suppose chili and his colleague did agree with phoebe's father that she does not have borderline personality disorder. And when looking at it, I think her Phoebe's father and Phoebe's mother are, are divorced because in the course of my research, there is talks of Phoebe's mother had a partner, but it's not her father. So I think they're separated. But Phoebe's father and her meet a lot. So Phoebe's father's words has a weight in them in some way because he meets phoebe on a weekly basis for coffee or for dinner and he even last saw her at breakfast on monday 29 november 2010 but 
it has some weight, but I suppose you could look at it in a way that if you meet somebody on a weekly basis on coffee and dinner, you don't really air some negative stuff there a lot. I don't know. Anyway, you could look at it that way as well. So in his statement to the police, Anthony Hamble, the boyfriend, said that sometimes when Phoebe was drinking, she would harm herself. And however, in oral evidence, he confirms that he could only recall seeing her do this on one previous occasion, and that was it. So kind of contradicting in a way. So that's why I keep on saying that he keeps on emphasizing or like pushing the narrative that her mental health is bad, which is not wrong. It's true, but it feels like he's just putting it in the front all the time so people could look at it like, yeah, she is not in a good place at the time of the incident. So, okay, now let's talk about what Hampel had said. What uh, Let's talk about what Anthony Hampel said a few days before the incident. And he stated that on November 29, as I have said, a few days before the incident, Phoebe went out with a friend and after that, she went to her mom's house at around midnight. So she didn't come home to their, to their apartment. She called him then the following morning saying that, hey, I'm going to go to work. But she didn't. He learned all about this because her colleagues, Phoebe's colleagues from her workplace, actually called him because they were searching for her because she didn't go to work and at the time of her death phoebe is working at a part-time job she is working three days a week at an advertising agency however because of her mental illness and you know her alcoholism and overall just struggling against that phoebe's attendance at work it was inconsistent uh, they said that Mr. Hampel said that she did not attend work on average around one day per week. So she's definitely struggling. She's having a hard time with balancing her life and fighting against her own demons. So in the, uh, November 29, she then got back to her apartment at around 12.30 a.m. Oh, not 29. That's around 30 now. I think so at November 30 she then got back to her apartment at around 12 30 a.m. and then she decided that at December 1 she would then decide to stay at home because she's been outside for so long and I think she just wants to rest <laughs> and according to Anthony because all of this is according to him because Phoebe could not explain herself anymore at this point she is unfortunately deceased so according to aunt he went back to the apartment mid-morning that day where phoebe decided to stay at home because phoebe's maternal is it maternal anyway phoebe's grandmother told him to check up on her and he then told phoebe's grandmother that phoebe had been drinking and she took ecstasy which is kind of weird. I don't know. Maybe it's a normal thing to say at this point in time. But it's just a weird thing to just say to your girlfriend's grandmother that 
she had been taking ecstasy and been drinking. I don't know. It's just weird to me, but I suppose it's not. It's just me being like, oh no. <laughs> Why would you say that to her grandmother? So, uh, Anthony eventually left Phoebe there because he knew that their house cleaner would keep Phoebe company on Hample's whereabouts on December 2, which is the day of the incident. The, uh, his colleagues were asked about where he was and they gave evidence about his whereabouts, but there are some inconsistencies because, of course, you're working and you don't really look at your colleagues and think that, hey, tomorrow or in the next few days, they might be involved in some kind of accident where I have to remember where they are accurately. You don't really do that. And so there are inconsistencies in the inconsistencies in the evidence given by Anthony's colleagues as to his movements that day. So there is one Matthew Flynn. He said that he first saw Ant when Mr. when he returned to their office in Richmond at approximately noon, so 12 o'clock noon. Ant had a lunch break for approximately 30 to 45 minutes. And in this lunch break, and had left his office. So Matthew Flynn had next saw him at approximately 1.30 p.m. and he was with Hampel until approximately 6 p.m. that evening. So he was with Ant, he said, for almost a whole afternoon. So another colleague, Miss Suzanne Aratun, she works in the same office building as Ant. She said that Ant and Mr. Flynn, the first colleague, left the office at around 11 a.m. and returned in the late afternoon. So there are inconsistencies there already because 11 p.m. And Matthew thinks he has been in the office at 12 noon. So there's this one hour of discrepancy between the two uh, colleagues. So there's another colleague, Miss Jackie Duca Clemens. She said that Ant arrived at the office at approximately 9 or 9 to 9.30 a.m. She worked with him on presentations that morning and then he took a lunch break for an hour at approximately 12 or 1 p.m. He then left the office to attend a meeting with Matthew Flynn and she did not see him in the office again until after 3 p.m. And there's this last colleague named Mr. Crystal Van Egmond. Honestly, having a name with Van sounds <laughs> sounds cool. Like just Van there, Crystal Van Egmond. So anyway, he is a friend and colleague of Ant and he was present he was with Ant at a meeting from approximately 3 p.m. to 4:30 p.m. that day. So looking at the colleagues and their testimonies, uh, it could be deduced that Ant didn't really have a lot of time to go out of the office except for the lunch break that one hour lunch break where they ha where they said that he went out for that but just looking at the testimonies of the colleagues and could not have gone out of the office for long because he was busy with work so actually the lawyers of Anthony opposed an inquest and they denied any involvement or knowledge of Ant in Phoebe's death 
So Ant told the inquest that he was trying to help his young girlfriend to control her drinking and improve her mental health at the time. So he did not want her to harm her. He actually wants to help her is what he is saying. So the submissions of the, of the lawyers in regard to the inquest request that a positive finding be made that their client, Anthony Hampel, was not involved at all in Phoebe's death. So Detective Andrew Healy gave evidence that, oh, so here, this is weird. This is where the weird part of Anthony Hampel is exposed. I mean, the kind of fishy, kind of suspicious, he becomes sus because, uh, while Detective Andrew Healy gave evidence that when he informed Ant that Phoebe is dead, he said that Ant had looked visibly upset, shocked, and that he did not recall seeing any unusual reaction from him. But there are two witnesses that have told the inquest that Ant's behavior was strange or unusual in the days after Phoebe's death. So the first witness is a police officer on the scene. Detective Constable Justin O'Brien, he told the inquest that he found Ant behaving strangely on the night Phoebe was found dead. He said, quote, his demeanor at the time was strange, end quote, because Detective Justin O'Brien, he was tasked to remain with Ant from 9.05 p.m. to 9.58 p.m. that evening. And he said that in that time frame, he saw that Ant was wailing and crying hysterically. So I guess, like normal behavior at first, he doesn't find it that weird because on the outside perspective, he and Phoebe had a relationship. So he is anguished because he, in the outside perspective, is a very loving boyfriend. And so while they were at the St. Killed the road police complex from 10.30 p.m. though, Detective O'Brien observed that, quote, During this time, Hampel continued to cry. I observed that there were no tears running down his face, nor did it appear that there had been any at all. Hampel was sniffling, yet there was no sign of mucus or snot coming from his nose. His eyes were not bloodshot or red, and his face appeared quite normal. End quote. So that's weird, right? He was crying. He looked like he was crying, but there were no tears. Nothing at all. So what? what is that? Is he just acting, pretending that he was crying? Because it's very weird. Because <laughs> have you ever cried without any tears coming out of your eyes? I don't know. I haven't. I personally haven't. When I cry, especially if someone had died, I cry so much that... I literally taste the tears on my lips because there's so much all over my face. So that's weird. The next weird part that Detective O'Brien said that Mr. Hampel actually offered to type his own statement because Ant thought that detective the detective might type uh, slower than him. So Ant thought that, hey, I might be a faster typer between us two. So... Maybe I could be the one to type down my statement. So that's also kind of weird. Because why? <laughs> why would you say that? So another witness, the second witness that said that Hampel was behaving weirdly is his own longtime friend, Vanessa Levin. And 
Vanessa Levin said that while it looked like they were a loving couple from the outside, they actually had some relationship problems. And while, yeah, you could think that, is there any relationship without any problems? But no, their problems is that Ant could come across as possibly verbally aggressive. So Mrs. Levin gave evidence about her observations about of Mr. of Ant in the days after Phoebe's death. She said that to explain his behavior, Ant would have moments that he would be looking like normal. You know, he goes to his computer, look at his Facebook, check his work work emails just like an ordinary day. So he is behaving normally. And then suddenly, when someone goes knocking at the door, he is going to go and lie down on the couch in a fetal position while holding a cushion and bracing himself. So that's weird. It looks like he was just turning his emotions on and off, is what it looked like to Miss Levin. She also said in the inquest that Ant appeared to be lapping up all of the all of the det- attention that he was getting. So already makes me feel so fishy. Makes me feel there's something suspicious with his movements, man. But when asked, Ant denied that he was turning his emotions on and off, and he said that. It was possible that his behavior in the presence of the detective was out of shock, but there is no explanation on why in the world his behavior is like that around his longtime friend. So here is when his longtime friend, Levin, Mrs. Levin, said that actually Phoebe had spoken to her about ending their, uh, her relationship with Ant about three times in the past six weeks before her death. I mean, I know six weeks could be a long time, but it's also not a long time, if you know what I mean. It could go quite fast, and to talk to somebody three times that you want to break your relationship, it means that the relationship isn't really going well. So Miss Young, the psychiatrist that was looking after Phoebe, said that partner relationship problems was a focus of her clinical work with Phoebe a lot. Phoebe had described her relationship with Ant as volatile to her psychiatrist. So her psychiatrist said that there were problems in the relationship and it struck her as a troubled relationship. So she said that Phoebe's feelings about the relationship fluctuated a lot. Phoebe was, you know that feeling that you were kind of in a stable relationship in a way and you and you want to stay there because it's stable, it's familiar, but it's actually toxic type of relationship. It's kind of like that. Phoebe was eager to have a stable relationship, but of course, there were problems all along. The, psychi- the psychiatrist said, quote, I think that she was not happy about the fact that she was not, if you like, an equal partner in that relationship and felt quite dependent, I believe on him. She was highly anxious at a lot of the functions and events that they attended. I had little sense of her capacity to go out and forge a life for herself by herself." So I understand how that feels. I mean, feeling like the more productive one is your partner and not yourself. You feel like you could not be independent, especially because if you remember, the apartment is ants and she was there helping with 
of course some financial stuff but i could own i could assume that ant was the one who was calling the shots a lot of the time so it doesn't feel like it's equal it feels like there's this power imbalance between the two of them especially if you consider that ant was much older than phoebe so there's already this unstable feeling and phoebe is feeling that of course so during the period up until the up until the time of Phoebe's death, her psychiatrist told the inquest that Phoebe told her that she was unhappy, that she felt that Ant actually put her down, and that he was defensive and aggressive. So in her the psychiatrist's last session with Phoebe before her death, it's at November 29, 2010. Phoebe said that she had argued with Ant, and then she ended up moving out for a week, and she stayed with her mother, her father, and friends before she ended up returning to the to the apartment and deciding to give it another go- give it another go. So it's very toxic. This is toxic. So Phoebe's mother, her brother Tom also gave evidence that Phoebe and Ant had broken up four times in the last six to eight weeks of her life. That's a turbulent relationship. But Ant disagreed that they had a formal break. You know, just let's have a break in a way that I don't want to see you for a week and then let's try it again type of thing. He said that they don't have a formal break and the break is just like that and said that there were only four short separations in the period of October to December 2010, which for me is definitely turbulent. That's a turbulent relationship. So on the night, uh, if you remember, when Phoebe went out with a friend at November 29, 2010, uh, Ant ended up calling her repeatedly when she went out with her friend. And apparently they had a disagreement earlier in the evening before Phoebe went out. Mr. Hessian, the friend that Phoebe went out with, said that the Phoebe's phone rang around 6 to 10 times in just half an hour, and it was quite interruptive. So he also described that at one stage, Phoebe had walked away from him, and it sounded like she was having a brief argument on the other line. So it's Ant. She was having a brief argument with Ant. And then... Uh, Mr. Hessian, the friend, described that Phoebe is upset and she felt harassed by the phone ringing and she ended up throwing the phone that evening. She was that mad. She was that irritated. So another friend called Mr. Silver said that when Phoebe contacted him on the 30th of November 2010 and when she did that, she was having some difficulties with Ant and she just doesn't want to live there anymore but she didn't want to just go back to her mother's house she feels like a burden and she wanted to try and just take care of it herself so that's just sad you see that it's not really going good this relationship between the two of the two of them so mrs levin uh anthony's friend gave evidence that phoebe stayed at her house on november 17 2010 and Phoebe back then was feeling quite insecure in both her relationship with Ant and with her relationship in general with her family, which is sad. And she felt that she needs to break away, possibly go travel alone, and do all the things that she'd always wanted to do. Phoebe told her that she was concerned about going to Paris because she has a plan 
with Aunt that they were going to Paris, and she was concerned that Aunt may propose, and she doesn't want to marry him. And if something went wrong, she'd have no money, because she is in another country. So she was worried about that. Talking to Phoebe's father, he gave evidence that on November 23, 2010, she had picked Phoebe up from outside her apartment because Phoebe had a suitcase with her and she said that Aunt had thrown her out. Aunt denied this though. He said that he did not throw her out. She just needed some time out and that she had never taken all of her belongings, though she did take a suitcase of her things. So her father, Mr. Hanschuk, said that Phoebe expressed on numerous occasions that she struggles with her living arrangement and she's confused because there's this expectation of being a tenant and a girlfriend. So there's two things and she's confused about that because despite her love for Aunt, there's this impressions that uh, in the time before her death, she just doesn't want to be in a relationship anymore but she just doesn't know how to leave that relationship which is i don't know how many times i've already said this but which is sad it is sad so during her lunch with phoebe mrs levin uh this lunch is on 26 november 2010 so all of these are just stuff that had happened before her death it's just less than a week before her death so in that lunch Mrs. Levin and her ended up discussing the relationship. So she was uh, Phoebe's concern that day was that Aunt was quite controlling, and that although she Phoebe knew that Aunt loved her, she felt that she really didn't have a voice in this relationship. So saying some advice, uh, Mrs. Levin recalled telling Phoebe that day that she needs to lay down everything on the table. And if things aren't going to, you know, they're not going to be able to agree on anything, if that happens, I think that maybe Phoebe should just finish it, which is a quite sensible advice. I myself would have given that advice. She said that Mrs. Levin thinks that Phoebe would have happily contemplated some kind of change in her life. And that's what she sees at that time. And her mother, Phoebe, said, Phoebe's mother, Mrs. Hanjok, said that Phoebe was clearly making plans for a life separate from Aunt, which is now getting even fishier and Anthony Hampel. Because while he is definitely having this uh, image that he is a loving, caring boyfriend that is just concerned for her well-being, these last few days of, their, of Phoebe's, like, before her death, it's not good. It's not looking good. It looks like she just wants to end the relationship. When asked, Aunt said that he had no knowledge of what Phoebe is feeling, her intended to just leave the relationship, but Mrs. Levin stated that Phoebe was determined, but she was talked into staying in the relationship. When Phoebe talked to Aunt, they had they reached this, this decision to stay together, and she thinks that Phoebe was just staying against, staying there in the relationship against her better judgment. <clears throat> so a man named Mr. Marriott gave evidence that in the early hours of Tuesday, November 30, 2010, Phoebe was angry because Aunt had treated her badly the previous evening. So Ms. Mr. Marriott stated that she had most definitely spoke up with him about leaving or 
you know, breaking up with him. And she wants to go to Malakuta Malakuta, and live there. He said that Phoebe and Ant had talked for hours. So whatever, Ant saying that he had no knowledge of Phoebe's feelings and intention, that's not correct, I think. I think so. So now we go to that night. What happened that night, according to Anthony Hampel himself? So he said that he got back at the Valencia building's basement car park at around 6.05 p.m. And he used his own security fob to open the gate. So before he got home, he said that in the morning, he had an early start. He went to the gym at around 8.15 a.m. Then he left home just after 9 a.m. Because he had a busy day at his company in Richmond. He has a lot of meetings off-site. So now that he got home using his personal key fob, which only have access to the level where he lived, he took the elevator and let himself into his apartment. And later, he couldn't remember if his front door was locked when he arrived or not. So when he got in the apartment, his dog, an American Staffordshire Bull Terrier, uh-huh, his name is Yoshi. Of course, you know how dogs get when you get home. Yoshi greeted and happily, <laughs> very energetically. So apparently, Yoshi made a mess and that's why there's cushions and just chaos all over the apartment you know when there are pillow stuffings just littered on the apartment so that's what Yo- that Anthony said that that was Yoshi's doing and when he looked around the apartment he realized that there was no sign of Phoebe anywhere and this doesn't really uh, I guess this doesn't really surprise him a lot and he looked at the kitchen counter and this is when he noticed that in the kitchen counter, Phoebe's keys and handbag was there. And that's when he started feeling puzzled. Because you could leave the apartment without keys, but you couldn't get back in because you need to have the security fob. And her handbag is there. Where could she go without her handbag? So looking around, this is where things get really weird. So he found that there are several post-it notes containing some strange scribbles. And these were stuck to the kitchen counter. So the cleaner, because they had a house cleaner, he knows that the cleaner had wiped these down the previous day, so these notes were new. So looking around, he ended up going into the bedroom and found that, here it is, the weird part, he found what he later described as a shrine on the bed. A shrine. And in this shrine, quote-unquote shrine, It consists of a photo of himself and Phoebe, a photo of Phoebe's cat, and a whole lot of notes with ramblings all over. And he said that these are the type of notes that she writes when she is like smashed with alcohol and they didn't really make a lot of sense. So he also found candles burning and Phoebe's, you know, uh, hair straighteners, the irons, hair irons, they were still on the floor, plugged in a socket in a bathroom. And this is weird, right? Because I've talked already a lot about what the police have seen, the evidences, and all of that stuff. But there are no talks about any shrine or post-it notes. There's nothing about that. He is the only one who had, you know, raised that information up. So that's really weird. (laughs) Because what in the world does that mean? 
a shrine and nobody else had seen that shrine. So in cross-examination, Ant said that when he arrived home, he then saw the fragments of glass and it caused him concern, but he did not sweep it up, which makes me feel like, not only makes me feel really suspicious, but you have a dog there and there's glass on the floor. Please sweep it up. You're gonna... (sighs) I don't know. The dog, man, the dog. Those poor, poor paws. So he said that he did not sweep it up. He was concerned and was looking to see whether Phoebe may have been, you know, doing something on the computer, looking to see if there was any peculiar website or anything at all. And that is when he saw the blood on the keyboard of the computer. But he did not recall if he cleaned it up before the police arrived. So the blood had caused further concern for him. He said in the inquest, quote, I was so concerned, I was looking for anything that may have shown me anything else to be concerned about or um, anything at all, so I was becoming um, very concerned at that point." End quote. So Anne said that he continued to use the computer because he would possibly have been looking at the search history, so looking at where she had been browsing, what music she might have been playing, anything that could give him a clue as to what was really going on. He said that he was distressed and he was actually not looking for anything specific, just a clue or anything that would tint him on anything. He could not recall what he discovered but said, uh, but he kind of like explained that because he said that he was in quite a state. And said that these concerns on where Phoebe is had developed before he ended up speaking to Phoebe's father. Because Phoebe's father would end up calling Ant later, a little bit later. So, though aspects of Ant's oral evidence about him being distressed at that particular point in the evening really does not mesh well with the facts that was seen (laughs) in the apartment because his statement to police on December 2, 2010 does not refer to him going straight to the computer to check in a state of distress. There's no indicate uh, for indications as to where Phoebe is. He also did not refer to going to the computer in his interview with the police on November 2, 2011. So suddenly he's saying that he did this, but he had never said that on an interview earlier. You know, that's kind of does not mesh well with the facts. And he did not look at any documents at all between 6.09pm when he arrived home and 8.10pm when he went downstairs. He did look at the GarageBand app iMovie app because he was looking at what music she was listening to so she did that but she did not but he did not look at any word documents at all so there's this report of Mr. Robertson the one who had analyzed the computer in this report it was revealed that Ant had logged into Facebook so that's what he was doing before Dr. Hanschuk Phoebe's father called him and Phoebe's father recalls that Hample did not mention that he had found blood and glass in the port in the apartment, and he did also not recall that Ant was in a state of distress in the phone call. And also, which is why I am harping on the fact that he does not sound distressed, because after that, he had a cigarette, he drank a beer, he fed the dog, and he ended up waiting. Where is the distressed part in that, really? 
And this is also one、uh, thing to think about because he ordered takeaway food at he ordered takeaway food at 7:20 p.m. and he ordered for only one person. One person. Yeah. So he also ended up speaking with his colleague Matthew Flynn, and their conversation would have been work-related. And his laptop, Anthony's laptop, was open on the table. Meant that he may also have used his laptop. He may have like worked on something. So where is the distrust in that behavior? I can't see the distrust part in that behavior at all. And he also did not ring the police or the manager's office. He did not look like he was really searching for her. So where, yeah. So when、uh, Phoebe's father rang back at 7:28 p.m. and suggested that he goes and ask the concierge, and did not do so. So at 6:51 p.m., actually, about 40 minutes after Ant came home, this is when、uh, Phoebe's father had called. So he called Ant. At six six fifty one six fifty one, and then he called again at seven twenty eight. So in the first call at six fifty one p.m., Phoebe's father recalls that he had called Phoebe on her iPhone, but Len and Allen、uh, Len is Phoebe's father's name. <laughs> so Len and Aunt have different memories actually of what happened next. So according to Len, who based his recollections on his phone bill. So facts, Ant had answered his call on Phoebe's phone. So Phoebe's phone is there, his iPhone. Ant said that he didn't hear Len call Phoebe's phone, but called him from his own phone at 6:52 p.m. So weird, because there's you know there's this debate going on about Phoebe's phone and its whereabouts, the iPhone. So when they spoke, Len explained that he was trying to call Phoebe. Because there's a there's a plan for the three of them, so Len, Ant, and Phoebe, to catch up for dinner that night at the Golden Triangle. So this is one of Phoebe's favorite restaurants, and this is to celebrate Len's birthday two days earlier. So Len was calling to ask what time that they should meet. So this is another thing where is this suicide or not? Because they have. You could see that Phoebe has plans for her future, even if it's not that clear. It's a little bit on the vague side. There's plans. She plans to go and eat the birthday dinner with her father. She has plans to go and break when she's free to do whatever she wants. She wants to move to Malakuta in the far future. She wants to go to India and help people there. There's plans. So there's another like. Thing that people use as an argument against her committing this by herself, and so yep, Len was calling because he wants to know what time they should meet, and Aunt just said that she's not in the apartment, but her bags and her but her bag and her keys were there, so she could not be too far away. This news worries Phoebe's father, because the day before. Wednesday, Len and several other members of the family actually had received this strange text message from Phoebe's iPhone number. Weird. So this message said, quote, "Hi, family. I am in bed and about to sleep, and when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not, I will go to hospital. 
It's safer there and I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious, nutritious. I love you all very much but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that, but time is sleep and I must be on my way. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. EXO So, weird. At first glance, you'd think, are you high? But it's weird because Phoebe had sent this message to Len, and her boss, Michelle Silvana, her mother, Natalie, her brothers, Tom and Nick, her grandmother, Jeanette Campbell, and Natalie's partner, Russell Marriott. So actually, when Natalie, Phoebe's mother, received these messages, she was boarding a plane in Alice Springs to fly home after a nine-week work in the western desert. She was actually so concerned that she called her mother, Jeanette, in Malakuta and asked her to check on Phoebe. So this is why Jeanette rang Ant on his phone at 10.35am and this is why she asked Ant to, you know, check on Phoebe and ask and see if she is alright. So Ant said he hadn't seen the message and he just left Phoebe sleeping peacefully that morning but he'd go and swing by and check on her because his office wasn't very far from home. So Jeanette, the grandmother, then sent Natalie a text saying that Ant had assured her that Phoebe was fine. So when Natalie arrived in Melbourne later that day, she just sent Phoebe a text asking her to call when she had woken up. So according to Jeanette Campbell, the grandmother, Ant had checked Phoebe and he just found her alright. So Len, let's go back to Len and the night of the incident. So Len was worried when Ant told him that Phoebe wasn't in the apartment. He suggested that Ant could go and report her missing. But Ant kind of like disagreed with that, saying that the police would not listen to him and that they would only listen until 48 hours have already passed and by then she would have been back. Which for me is, if you think somebody is missing, you don't have to wait that long. Go to the police, tell them, you know, tell them. Because the most important part, the most important time period in a missing in a missing person is 24 to 48 hours. Because the evidence is there. And the evidence is still fresh. You could still follow the person if they ran away. It's That time frame is very, very important. So yeah. Lens Len, Phoebe's father, who is a psychiatrist, had actually called uh, Ant from the car park outside his office. So while he was still sitting in his car, he phoned his son, Tom, and asked him to call a friend who might know where Phoebe had gone. Uh, so Len also rang Natalie, and when he called, Natalie called a couple of Phoebe's friends, including her close friend, Mr. Hessian. So he's... Hessian said that he really hadn't seen Phoebe since Monday night when the two of them went on a drink together. And so, Len, after all of this, he decided not to drive over to where uh, Phoebe is or, you know, the vicinity of the apartment. But instead, he went home to all to his own city apartment to have, you know, dinner and all of that stuff. Which I think is him, like... There's a problem, he is worried, but he doesn't think that things are going to end this way. So back to Ant, at Valencia Apartments, he, as I have said, bought a takeaway dinner for himself. And guess where he bought that dinner? 
in Golden Triangle, where it, and that is where they are supposed to be eating dinner with Phoebe and his father and her father in Golden Triangle. That's where he bought the takeaway dinner delivery for one. So just after 8 p.m., this is when the delivery had come. He buzzed the delivery boy up to the 12th floor where his apartment is. And when the delivery boy got there, he asked Anthony what's going on. Because while he was trying to go and deliver the food, the front of the building, there's police, there's cops, there's police cars, there's an ambulance. And he actually, the delivery boy, had to actually prop his bike up the street and tried to find a way to go and get inside and he is concerned that the food is cold because he had some kind of trouble there's so many cops there and it's hard for him to go inside the apartments so hearing that and knows that having like a lot of police in Valencia apartments it was peculiar that's not a commonplace event and leaving his meal and went down to the foyer and approached a detective so approaching a detective uh, approaching a detective he said like hi i live here what's going on so the policeman that answered him acting senior sergeant andrew healy told that they found a woman's body in the rubbish compactor room and another suspicious behavior from Ant, his reaction is, Oh no, my girlfriend is missing. Could it be her? Like, how did you jump to that conclusion? I mean, he knows that she is missing, but kind of, I don't know. I think it's obvious that I'm looking at the boyfriend's in narrowed, suspicious eyes because he is suspicious and everything he does at this point feels suspicious to me. And anyway, that's his reaction. Like, oh no, my girlfriend is missing. Could it be her? So Ant then said that he had been work all day and but he is calling Phoebe every couple of hours on the home phone because her mobile was broken. And he even said that she was suffering from depression, she was taking medication, and then he made a couple of calls to try to find her after he'd arrived home, but she hasn't turned up herself yet, and that she had left some post-it notes, but no clues where she had gone. Healy then asked and whether Phoebe had any, you know, distinguishing features, and told him that she had a tattoo on her right wrist, to match one on his own wrist and he showed his tattoo to the detective and and also said that phoebe has a stud in her upper lip so after the detective sent Ant back to his apartment to find a recent photograph of phoebe healy viewed another officer's photos of the body so he could compare that to Ant's photos so detective healy followed Ant up to the apartment and this is where he asked Ant if Phoebe had a tattoo on her stomach and said that yeah Phoebe does have a tattoo on her stomach so Healy examined the recent photo and confirmed that Phoebe she matches those of the dead girl that was found in the rubbish room so at this point he told Ant that he believed that the dead girl was Phoebe. The detective later reported that he had no mobile reception in the apartment, so he went back downstairs, leaving Ant alone and behind the apartment, and the de detective spoke to the other police. 
He then returned with another detective to examine the apartment and its surroundings. So this is when they had noted several things of interest. The broken glass and some blood on the floor. They also saw the post-it notes allegedly left by Phoebe. And he uh, and said that he was devastated and that he was too upset to view the bodies. So the detectives now kept looking around the 12th floor. Now focusing outside the unit, this is where they found blood on the floor of the 12th floor garbage room, which contained a rubbish chute and a spot of blood on the door handle. So left alone again, and called his mother, Suzanne Owen, and his stepfather, Robert. And then he rang Phoebe's dad to tell him that Phoebe was dead. Imagine that feeling of hearing that your daughter is dead uh, just imagining that it's just so sad so uh and told len that phoebe was dead and then suggested that the father contact phoebe's brothers and they should come over to the apartment so phoebe's father actually said that later that he was in shock at this and he just ended up seat sitting on the floor just just uh, tragic he then called son his son tom and he was in tears by then but he didn't say what was upsetting him he just tell that he just told that he needs to come home so tom not knowing what happened he left his girlfriend's house in east malvern and then headed for the city len then tried to call natalie but she didn't answer a little later, she did. She noticed that she had missed two calls from Len, and so she called him back, asking what had happened, if they had found Phoebe. And this is when Len told her that Phoebe is dead. Actually, this is what the father said. Quote, I hope you're sitting down. She's dead. They found her near the rubbish bins at the apartment. And then Natalie... Uh, she fell on her knees while she was still outside. She was in the gutter next to her car, and she was just in shock, saying, No, 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 that's not true. I can't, and then she, I can't talk. And then she hung up. So, with her partner at that time, Russell Marriott, she, he, uh, so her partner, Russell Marriott, came out to look for her. Then he actually had to pick Natalie up from the ground and carry her inside. Just, just imagining that, it's heartbreaking. So Russell, seeing Natalie's state, he was the one who phoned Jeanette, which is Phoebe's grandmother. He was, uh, Phoebe's grandmother is actually in Melbourne at the time from because she came there from Malakuta that day to celebrate Nick, another, I think, grand son or granddaughter that she has and the way she was in Melbourne at the time and so Russell asked her to come to the Clifton Hill house immediately and the grandmother she first thought this was because of Phoebe she asked is she okay but Russell just did not want to tell the news over the phone it's it's a heavy heavy news and so he just doesn't want to tell her she just told her to come soon so when Jeanette arrived at Clifton Hill, Natalie told her that Phoebe was dead. And the grandmother is a very close person to Phoebe. They were so close together and she was so devastated. They could not understand what had happened. 
And even Jeanette showed Natalie two texts from that morning. She had sent Aunt a message asking how Phoebe was. And he replied at 8.32am saying, Thanks ma'am, she's sleeping beauty right now and not the beast she was. Resting well and I've explained now is the time to heal. Then when she feels okay, we'll work out a plan. And that's... I don't know, I put that here because it's sad. You could see the... Uh, plans for the future and they don't have that anymore because Phoebe is dead and no plans are going to come anymore <laughs> and that's just that's just sad gives me that sinking feeling in my stomach and depressing it's very depressing and now that's all about I have for Ant and after the inquest of course the coroner would give their own findings after reading the data, the information, all of that investigation. What was the coroner's finding? <sighs> he uh, still goes by his decision that it is a freak accident and nothing else. That was still the finding because there might be clues that third-party involvement may be be there but it could be explained by something else you know because the evidence itself is not complete because the initial investigation of the police it's butchered it's completely not thorough and so they don't have enough evidence in their hands and so they could not like completely completely lean on the fact that this is a murder murder case and so the coroner said that this is still still a freak accident and that's it they look at ant and he is still not a suspect because there's no need for suspects if it's a freak accident and that's just uh, i can only just sigh because sigh in frustration in a way because say that this is a freak accident it doesn't feel like it is because all of their options aren't exhausted you know think like you need to tick off all of the other options out there to make sure that this is really what had happened but that is not the feeling here so it feels incomplete and yeah that's the coroner's findings but this is not the end of the episode as of yet because while Phoebe Hanschuk's case had ended up like that, Anthony Hample, he, he is still not out of trouble. Because around, oh no, I lost my place in my list. There we go. Around eight years later, after Phoebe Hanschuk's death, Hample was caught up in another tragic death in 2018 because his then-girlfriend, Bailey Schneider, she was found dead a few hours after she ended her relationship with Ant. So see why I could not look at Ant and think he did something. This is, if this is a coincidence, this is such a fucking heck of a coincidence. And yeah, I'm not going to delve so deep into Bailey Schneider's case, but I'm going to highlight the similarities between her and Phoebe 
because on June 24 that year, 2018, Billy Schneider, she was only 25 years old. So see, there's still that age gap between her and Ant, which Phoebe and Ant had. So she was 25 years old and she was discovered by her parents inside their home in Mooney Ponds. She was on the floor of the kitchen and she has a cord tied around her neck. So actually on that day, so this is not like Bailey's own apartment where she's living in alone with her boyfriend, but this is her parents' home. So she, the, her parents live there. So actually that uh, Saturday morning, Cameron and Sabine, 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 Sabine Schneider, they went to the local shops. So they left Bailey there saying that they would be back in an hour or two. So Bailey was just curled up on the couch in the lounge room next to their family dog, Edna, and she was talking into her phone. Actually, she had attended a backyard barbecue with Aunt the night before, and she was upset with him. Uh, but by the time her parents had left her because they had to go shopping to the local shops, she had already recovered her composure. So see, she has a trouble with her relationship with Aunt at the time. So when the couple, the mother and father, returned, this is where they found Bailey lying unconscious on the kitchen floor. Her head was uncomfortably placed into the skirting boards near a corner cupboard. So around her neck was a cord that was from her bedroom. So it was apparent that Bailey had poured a glass of wine for herself and she had smoked a cigarette while her parents were out. Her portable Bluetooth speaker also appeared to have been used. So according to her parents, Bailey's toxicology, re toxicology report showed traces of cocaine and a relatively low blood alcohol level. So Bailey also had been having a difficult time in the months leading up to her death. She also ha is having her own mental health issues. She had become more secretive and she began working at Melbourne's strip clubs. And this is where she got into unhealthy influences. She had become adept at concealing the reality of her life from her parents. So after Bailey's death, her mother, Sabine, contacted Aunt, who actually she has never met, to let him know that Bailey is dead. He expressed his sympathy and added that he actually had been trying to help Bailey blossom and uh, fight against her own struggles with her life and mental health. And isn't this familiar? <laughs> so, Ant is actually not among the 150 or more people who attended uh, Bailey's memorial service at a Kensington, ha Kensington Hall. He didn't come. I don't know if he was barred to go or he just didn't go. Yeah. Bailey's death was also ruled a suicide caused by self-induced asphyxiation. And just like Phoebe's case, her parents find this hard to believe. So her father, Cameron Schneider, told The Age newspaper that her decision to take out a life insurance policy three weeks before she died was bizarre. So her father also pointed out that there was nowhere to attach the cord in his kitchen near where her body was found. The coroner, though, 
said, concluded, quote, I am satisfied that Ms. Schneider, while affected by drugs, alcohol, prescription medication, and cocaine, upset by relationship difficulties, made an impulsive decision to end her own life. End quote. So she, Bailey, she was a young model and she is a dental assistant. She broke up with Aunt, then 51 years old, that morning. That morning, and she didn't leave a suicide note. So at the first anniversary of her death, her parents still remain unsettled by some aspects of her case. And police working under the direction of the Victorian coroner, they still continue to investigate. So the most confounding fact in this in Bailey's case is the lack of an obvious point in the kitchen from which the uh, Bailey could have hung herself. Because she's a model, she's tall, she's around 178 centimeters, and in the kitchen, they could not find a place where she could have, you know, hung herself. So police and coronial officers returned to the Schneider house, Schneider house again, just to study the kitchen area and take photographs. So, yeah. And is believed to be among the last people who she had communicated before her death. And they were about around nine months in their relationship before they had broken up just that morning. But there is no suggestion that he was involved in or was responsible for her death. So it's kind of, if it's a coincidence, as I have said, it's such a, it's such a coincidence. Because what, 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 what kind of coincidence is that? And what do you call this? the uh similarities are there it's uncanny you know and i don't know it's it's just an an add-on i suppose that i found incredible incredibly interesting when it comes to phoebe's then boyfriend anthony hampel and yeah that's about it for the case and that's about it for the episode the last episode for 2021 Oh my god, the year is ending. Where the fuck did it go? <laughs> so yeah, see you guys at 2022. And I hope that you guys have a merry merry Christmas and uh, whatever you celebrate <laughs> this holidays and have also a merry merry new year. I hope that you find this time a good time to celebrate with the family. Whether they are, you are there with them or just communicating with them online, digitally, and all of that stuff. I hope you spread the love. Spread the uh, merry making and have a good time despite the fact that it can be very, very busy. And uh, at the time that I'm recording, I could already feel it looming, the busyness. <laughs> meeting, uh, meeting family, going there, going here, celebrating. But I know it's going to be a fun time and I hope you guys also have a fun time and that's about it for this episode i hope you found it at fascinating at the least and yeah if you have any stories that you want me to cover or you want me to tell here in the podcast reading aloud your emails about your own uh 
experiences or a friend's experiences with, of course, permission to send it to me, you could email me at macabramblings at gmail.com. You could also contact me at Instagram, which is macabramblingspodcast. And I also have Twitter, where you could also go and contact me. It's at macarambles, which is M-A-C-A rambles. And that's about it. Make sure to eat well, especially in these holidays. Eat well, treat yourself to some good, good food. And always drink water. It, it can be a time where you there's a lot of alcohol around. You could have a good time partying, but always make sure to stay safe. There is still corona lurking around us. And while a lot of us, or like a couple of us, had already gotten the vaccine, this virus just isn't letting up so vigilance and just safety precautions is very very important so if you're gonna go and meet your grandmother you're gonna go and meet your mother your father your sisters make sure to always just observe like precaution hygiene is still very important and so yeah (laughs) i'd stop with my nagging and i hope you all all of you guys stay spooky And the very important thing that I keep on harping about for the last minute or two, stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye!